0: Give that shit up, you're gonna concentrate on golf.
1: If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Great moments are born in great opportunity. You play ball like a girl!
2: Thanks. Welcome to this week's edition of a Roy Orbison Tattoo Podcast with me, Colum, and my co hosts, Bossy and Paul. This is the coaching podcast with a difference. We watch a movie, it might help if you watch it too we get a special guest on, and we discuss the coaching from the movie and how it relates to our own experiences. So whether you're in the car, out for a run or a walk, or just using us to cancel out the noise from the kids in the background, we hope you enjoy. Okay, so welcome everybody, and uh, this week we are joined by Paddy Christie, and we're talking about the, I suppose, the documentary, A Football Life, from with Bill Walsh. So Paddy, thanks very much for joining us, first of all. No problem. Colin, how are things? Very good, very good. And thanks to Paul and Massey as always. How are you, How you doing? Lads? How are you getting on? Well, Very good. So, first of all, Penny, I suppose it's a regular first question. What made you choose this
1: movie? Um, I suppose I was I was talking to Paul about this before, um, and I was just saying I went, I brought a ballymon underage team to Portugal three times. It's a strange way to introduce this, but uh, I brought them to, to Portugal three times, and on one of the trips, I think it was the first trip, I. Bought that book the week before we went. I, I wanted a book on the trip because I'm a bit of a nervous flyer, you know. Um, I'm one of these fellas. That I I I'm sort of got a little bit better recently, but um, well, not in the last year and a year and a half, but um, I have got sort of a little bit more settled. But for for a number of years, I was always very nervous, and um, I got a, I, I, I'd, I'd heard about this book. It was it came on my radar through. An interview with Stuart Lancaster actually. Um, He had spoken about it when he was in the middle of managing the English rugby team which obviously didn't go well for him uh, ironically but yeah we were on I was on a flight and I just I I started reading that book and um, it was just one of those things uh, as I was discussing with Paul before you know I'm sure you've all read books where you just where the book just says nearly everything that you believe in, you know, and it just puts it in a certain way that you sort of say, yeah, that's exactly what I think. Now, you know, 99% of it would be a couple of small things I'd have my own versions of, but um, I just sort of thought, she's you know what, this is exactly what I believe in. I suppose I'd never really formulated my beliefs or I'd never sat down and really thought about what I was doing. Um, I would have thought about it, but I wouldn't, wouldn't have down any major depth about it. And, I suppose I never sat back and did a self-reflection of where I was at. And when I read the book, it was just one of those things where I said, yeah, that's exactly what I think um, in a nutshell. And um, a whole lot of little snippets of that were just then purposely put into what I was doing from then on. They were already there anyway, but I suppose I was conscious now of what I was doing with them. And just because with some massive organization like the San Francisco 49ers, some of the things that were there were just as applicable to a corner a shop or a little small, a small GA, a medium sized GA club in Ballymon um, Yes. That,
0: that, and were you a fan of the American football prior to this? Or was it just no, something you picked up and just applicable?
1: Yeah, not not hugely. Um, not, not, not hugely at all, really. I mean, I would have watched, had a little bit of interest in it, but it was never really done an awful lot for me. I was more interested in the personalities in it, to be honest with you. Um, I was more interested in. In the likes of uh, Bill Walsh, and there's another fellow who who managed the Pittsburgh Steelers for the guts of twenty years, a fellow called Chuck Knoll. and he he they, they won four Super Bowls, and um, again a li- he had some overlap with Bill Walsh, and then in in, in other ways actually very very different, um, and it was always two guys that particularly uh, had an effect on me. Just you just pick up little bits and pieces from what they say and. Things they do and what things they didn't do. So I suppose that's where it all came about. Um, for me, I would say <clears throat> that you just have to be careful with these things. Like, there's certain things that don't apply to a, a medium-sized GA club in, in in a disadvantaged area in Dublin. But you have to pick and choose what's relevant and what's not. Of course, you know.
2: Yeah, and like, look, I suppose it was actually interesting from the perspective of two years into his coaching career as a head coach. Um, we may never have heard of him. Yeah. You know, and like, I'd imagine a lot of coaches probably have a very similar philosophy, but obviously his status gave him a position where he was actually put that philosophy onto paper for others to see. And like yourself, you were probably, I'd imagine you were, you were a young man, a young coach at that time when you probably read the book, um, kind of out in the journey that for a, for a young coach, it's great to kind of have, yeah, I actually, I do that. Or I'm, I agree with that and stuff like that. Like,
1: Oh, Colin, I'm very, I'm very um upset. You're, you're not. Are you saying I'm not young anymore? <laughs> Colin O'Brien is grin. He's like a Cheshire cat. There, grinning. and he's been telling me I'm, I should be retiring soon at this stage. But uh, no, I all serious. Being serious, it is great to have something like that. Like, um, again, there were stuff. Some of the stuff was already there, and things I was doing. But I suppose it just gave me a bit of a, a backup. It, it sort of it, it reinforced some of the things that I taught and. And it gave me, I suppose, what I did with that book was afterwards I I actually went through it forensically and I took loads of things out of it and went into like massive detail over and took like big chunks of it and see and see went to see how I could apply it to whatever I was doing, whether that was with the Dublin minors in 2015 or Ballymun's underage structures or. Um, whatever else I was involved with over the years, I, I sort of, I, I had a slant in that all the time. I would, I would always be thinking about those things in the back of my mind. It didn't dictate what I was doing, but it certainly was some sort of element of, you know what I mean? It, it was nice to fall back it. it's lovely to have it there. And particularly when you're doing those things and you just get a eureka moment You say, Jesus, that's exactly what I think. You know, you know, when you get that sort of thing, it's, a, it's lovely. It's, it's a nice, it's a nice feeling because when you see somebody at that level doing that and having those opinions, and you and you think that you know you're along the same lines, it does give you a bit of confidence, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting you actually mentioned Stuart Lancaster there
2: because, like, obviously a highly renowned coach, but even when he was with England, he probably didn't have the results he wanted, similar to yeah. Bill Walsh, and he went one way whereas Bill Walsh went
1: the other. Yeah, I suppose that even those experiences are interesting from a learning side of things because. You felt like that yourself. Like, I mean, I think I've had a lot more failures than I've had successes personally in a lot of different things in life. And I suppose the big thing is if you're patient enough and you wait long enough, things will normally turn if you're putting the right things in place. I suppose there are people who, call them I would see as short term people who can do things very quickly and come in and just click their fingers. And within six months, you turn things around in a short-term way and then there are other people who are long-term I suppose I would see things that I would see myself as a long-term person I think to, there's short-term pain for long-term gain and you have to do a lot of sort of things that don't necessarily work out in the short term for, for it to be a long-term permanent sort of fixture then you know that's that's what, what I would have learned from both of those I mean I think uh, Stuart Lancaster, Lancaster wasn't given much of a chance anyway and it was all done in results, and I suppose he was in the middle of. You'd wonder, with all the success that Leinster have had, I wonder if he was left with England for long enough. Would they have, would things have been different for them? But people can be very much like that. They can go for a short-term fix, and I would know managers and coaches in GA who would, um, they would be able to come in and within a few months sort a lot of things out. The problem with it is is that within a couple of years you'll find that when they leave then things start to fall apart again and um, because it wasn't it was it, it was done in a way that was conducive to short-term success but it didn't mean that it could last in the long term and it often meant that it relied upon one person holding everything together and if you took that person out of the equation then the whole thing collapsed which again is wrong like that, that can't work because. We're all in GA clubs, they are all in sports clubs where um, we know people who are drivers, who are you know workers and they, they, they're they the people behind the brains, behind the operations. So probably in massive clubs, so-called massive clubs like Kilmercourt and Ballyboden, as big as they are, there's probably around eight or ten people who are driving everything. And you take them out of the equation and the thing collapses. Uh, in clubs like Ballyboden, you're probably talking about three or four. And people then stand back down and awfully and Kildare and Leash and say, oh, gee, Mona, the powerhouses of they're superpower, little did they realize, like there's probably around three people really involved and take them out of the equation and, and the whole thing collapses, you know. So I suppose what I learned from that was, was that you've got to try and put things in place that will last independent of any particular person, try and put structures in place and then get really as many good people as possible so that it doesn't revolve around one person. And then if that person does move away, like, you know, people can get sick, people can change jobs, people can move out of the area. That doesn't mean that a club should, or an organisation should collapse, you know.
0: I think one of the successes of the GPO scheme in Dublin is that, I know when I was GPO, we try to come around that is, a success is if you're not there, that it can keep going, it can run, the ship can run itself. Yeah. And I think that has been as I said, a big success for Dublin is that now nurseries run themselves, so you don't need the GPO to be there all the time. They're there coaching the coaches, they're so not there setting up the gear or coaching the kids or whatever it is. And I think that is finding its way up through different age groups and levels in Dublin now. And I think that's compared to other clubs around the country. It's massive. And then just come back there, what you're saying, um, about the book and the watch, like patience in the club is massive, isn't it? Um, yeah. Is that you put your plan in and you stick to it and you give it time. Like, like what you're doing now, say, under eights, isn't going to pay off really till like 10, 12 years, 13 years' time. And that's yeah. patience. Like, it's as you said, you have your short term people who come in, they might do well for six to 12, 18 months, 24 months, but they're gone. You could be finished. you be back to square one again. So, uh, definitely patience is a massive thing.
1: You have to have patience but obviously you need to see something you can't have patience with somebody who's totally inept either you know no, no, you
0: have to depend
1: yeah there. i mean that's you, you have and then you have to have there's a and all just like you just have to have there's a bit of fate involved in all these things but you do need to see breadcrumbs you need to see little bits and pieces of snippets of little things that are successful or, or are showing promise and um, but i suppose yeah it can take 10 years and the interesting thing is is that you'll have people take... You'll see a team under 10 being taken up into minor and, you know, their, their work wasn't done with them between under 10 and minor. And then they'll play a minor championship game and a fellow say to you, will you go into the dressing room before the game and say a few words like, <laughs> pal, you've had eight years to do that, you know? You've had eight years to train them and they can't catch the ball they can't kick the ball but you think that I'm going to be Al Pacino and go in and start talking about inches? Like, I mean, <laughs> that's not going to... You know, that doesn't work. That those... I'm, I'm very, very skeptical and Paul would know this from the DCU stuff, like guest speakers, that sort of thing. I wouldn't say I'd frown upon it, but I would be very, very skeptical of it because I just think that it's usually done by people who feel that they haven't got the work done beforehand. If you do the work and you put it in place, then the more than the book, the score takes care of itself. A lot of things will happen just by itself. You put all those building blocks in, the foundations in the house are solid it'll take any sort of a battering in the storm. But I mean, if you have, you're bringing somebody in a half, half an hour, 45 minutes before the game, I tell you, like there's not many people in history who can sort of do that sort of stuff. Like there's not many miracles. Um, there's only one person I think in the Bible who could take water and turn it into wine, you know? So um, if the work isn't done beforehand, it's, it's, it's all about, it's long-term, like all these things are long-term things. I think I, I, I don't, I'm not a big believer in short-term stuff.
3: And, and Paddy, just following on from that, like, so your your, your time in Tipperary this year with, with Davy Power and a number of other people, that brought that short-term success. Yeah. But is there a real underpinning there that Tipperary football is going to continue pushing on this year?
1: Well, Paul... And, and beyond. Yeah. Like, you're right. i I'm, I'm contr- Am I contradicting myself? Not really. We, we put in place something for the long term and we're in the middle of that right now. And it just so happened that things sort of fell into place and we did get short-term success but if you're asking me did we want that of course we wanted it but were we expecting it i can only speak personally i don't have to be careful what i say here like i thought we had a chance because of the because of a couple of we've of very good forwards and with michael quindlevin coming back and that sort of thing i just sort of thought you know what there's there's a chance here but I wasn't thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to be lifting the Munster Championship. I mean, I, I was thinking all along, and I know the lads are thinking all along, and I know David Power is very much into this idea of planning for the long term and that, the, that in two or three years' time, if somebody else came in, that the place would be in a better – the, be the team would be in a better place, the setup would be better, and that you'd, be, you'd inherit something with a higher potential. I suppose that's what I'm thinking. It just so happened that things fell into place this year to a certain extent, bar the Mayo game. Um, things fell nicely and we, we got a bit of a run. We, we stayed up in the league and then we got a run in that championship and you know, probably caught Cork on the hop and and ended up with a Munster championship. Um, Cork had obviously taken Kerry out of the equation. So like those things fell into place nicely, but they don't in any way affect the long-term things. I suppose they're a nice little add-on and there's no doubt about it, it gave Tipperary football a huge boost, but I suppose ultimately if you weren't planning for the long term, it wouldn't have served any purpose because, you know, those short term, like that would give things a boost for the next year. You probably, you know, young, young players, young footballers, particularly in South Tipperary will think, geez, that that was fantastic, but that'll eventually run its course. And then the structures and, you know, all the work that's been done at the moment, they'll come in, they'll become the main part of it, not the, the successes or the defeats you know so it, it, I'd agree with you it does look like I'm contradicting myself but that was just the way it fell it wasn't um, I, I, I honestly say that we we wanted to do well in the league last year and we saw we were playing Claire in the fourth round of the championship we knew we would be underdogs in that game but we felt we could beat them and if we did that uh, whatever would happen after that we would just feel by doing well in the league and Eaten Clare by a point in the championship. That would be a progress for Tipperary this this year or last year. So that's where where we came from. And the other stuff is just bonus territory, you know. Yeah.
3: Then and then is there is we'll say that link between the under twenties and seniors. That's that's coming this year. With you managing the the under twenties, mm. that is really trying to bed everything in together. Well, there is it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's that is certainly a big part of this. Like. Um, I suppose one of the advantages, or one of the uh, positives, maybe there's not maybe an awful lot of positives that I might bring to, to to football, but I suppose one of the things with Ballymon was we had we did have success. Or personally, I had a lot of success in bringing players through from 17 or 18 years of age and integrating them into adult setups, and it was done sort of uh, sort of carefully and. In a very slow, deliberate sort of way, um, and there was a lot of little tricks of the trade. And of course, in a disadvantaged area, in North Dublin is, isn't comparable to Tipperary football. But I suppose there are certain things that are common, and one of them is is the ability to make things the, the 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 what would you call it the way to make things a little bit easier for younger players to make that transition. I suppose the the, the pathway is what you'd call it. Um, like how easy is it for a young fella who's 18, 18, 19 years of age a good young promising footballer in Tipperary to walk into a Tipperary senior football dressing room, particularly after last year and they're all now Munster Championship winners with medals in their back pocket, one of them is there's two all-stars in there now, Conor Sweeney and Michael Quinlevan. so you're walking into a dressing room with a couple of all-stars with lads with Munster medals in their pocket um, that can be quite um, intimidating I think and um, people automatically assume that every young fella will want to go and play at the highest level, and you know, be in with his heroes and all that sort of thing. But in my experience with One anyway, it wasn't always the case. I think fellas could pick and choose very easy whether they wanted to play, and you had to dangle the carrot, and you had to make life easy for them. And one of the ways was was to have people involved um, who, uh, at underage, who would be involved in the adult setups then, because once a fella gets to know a fella underage once a player gets to know an underage coach I think when they're if they have that person again at adult level not necessarily as a manager but in some role in the setup, I think that that familiarity is really important it makes them more settled Um, and it's also important that the older players on the senior panel feel predisposed to helping those younger players come in and feel and see them in the right way not as a threat but as uh, as a mentor, they, they, they would see themselves in some sort of a mentoring role uh, and, you know, we'd be talking to players without making pe- people feel welcome. Uh, uh, I suppose in my experience, um, and with this is what a lot of us come back to, you know, we always go back to our own little thing. I came into the Dublin senior panel when I was 19 and I'd say half the fellas were very welcome. No, a third of the fellas were, were very welcome. A third of the fellas didn't even acknowledge it. And then the Tour of Fellas were actually not nice at all. And you know, told you like not to sit in that seat because that's somebody else's seat. And you know, don't put your bag down there and all this sort of stuff. And there was a bit of sort of slagging and laughing and sort of um, I think they call the Americans called the hazing, you know, t- 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 taking the mick out of people. Um, not necessarily in a nice way either. Like, um, and funnily enough, Bill Walsh would have would have spoken about that when he said when when players came into the San Francisco 49ers he banned that. He said he just couldn't accept that at all. It was just people were to be treated with respect. Once you remember the organization for as long as it was, whether it's a week or a year or 10 years and you wore that crest, then you were treated with respect. And that was just basically banned. There was a coarse sense of humor and there was good, good fun, but none of that was tolerated taking the mick out of people and, and making a joke. I and mean, certainly the idea that you had, Certain places in the dressing room were only for certain members, and you, you weren't to, to talk and you weren't to say anything. And you know, you had to clean some people's boots or you know, do all those sort of things. Go and get the go, go and make the tea for the senior players, that sort of stuff. No, that I, I didn't like the idea of that at all. So, I suppose for my sort of things, I with Bally and now with Tipperary, you want to try and make those elder statesmen feel like they should have a role to play in developing the younger players. That might be something as simple as just welcome, welcoming them, shaking hands with them, you know, giving them a bit of a voice, um, little bits peace, talking to them, just saying hello and how are things, you know, just something as simple as that. But I suppose um, making the transition much simpler for those players is really, really important. It's just we, we all make those mistakes. We think that people automatically will all want to go and play at the highest level, but it, there can be a lot of barriers to that, you know.
3: And, and Paddy, you see in terms of, we'll say, Paul O'Brien is playing for the Tipperary Senior Footballers and he's coming towards the end, of the end of his career and I'm quite selfish in how I'm looking at it that I want to get a few more games. Any, any sort of methods in trying to get me to look at it more holistically in terms of developing them younger players or any thoughts around that?
1: Well, I suppose the best way to, to, I found with those things over the years was, was to be very honest with senior players and, and acknowledge that, of course, they want to get the last little bits, the last few dregs out of their career. And they're full, they can do that and still develop the younger players. Like those younger players, by them pushing them on, by the younger, by the young corner forward who's 19, putting pressure on the likes of, of a Connor Sweeney character. That only makes Conor Sweeney better near the end because what what will affect Conor Sweeney is if Conor Sweeney thinks that the number 13 jersey is mine until I decide to retire. That's ultimately really bad for him. And I I know that from experiencing my own inter-county career and the Dublin team where fellas felt that they owned the jersey. And overall, it wasn't good. You need to be having somebody breathing down your neck. And you have to look at that in a very positive way. Yeah, that fella wants to take the jersey off you. Yeah, you could lose your place, but for the for the, for the the group or the, the team or the organisation, for them to benefit, well, then this has to happen. And that could involve you losing your spot. But if you don't, and you become a better player to try and keep that fellow, uh, keep the wolves from the door, then you'll be a better player and the team will be better, better for it. So you just have to constantly preach the idea of, we're here for the good of Tipperary football, or we're here for the good of Ballymon Kickems. We're here for the good of, the, of Dublin football. Whatever it is, I suppose it's the bigger picture all the time, the long-term view that it's not about you, and 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 the way to do that for me, Paul, um, and the managers that have done it, or coaches that have done it. One of the keys is is to is to um, I suppose model that sort of behavior in the way that you conduct yourself and, and you can't talk about the team and the importance of the group or the organization if you're constantly talking about yourself all the time and if your ego is so big that you can't fit your head in the door it's very difficult for you to tell everyone that you need to work you know you need to do this for the team so i suppose the people who have be most effective in that regard for me are people who are unselfish and you know try and um promote other people in the team and the management and talk about how good everything is and not about themselves. <laughs> that's really, really important. Uh, you know, your actions speak, speak louder than words. So I suppose if you're telling, if you're constantly talking about, if Paddy Christie is constantly talking about how great Paddy Christie all, is all the time and then he goes over to Connor Sweeney and says, you need to do this for the team. It's sort of, that's not exactly uh, probably the right way to do things. Whereas at least if Connor Sweeney feels that all of us, including Paddy Christie, want what's best for Tipperary football I think the message the message is going to be the same it's it's the person giving the message is the key and, and how you model that behavior
0: there's a great was, example of that in the film with uh, Joe Montana and Steve Young when they have the the legend of three Super Bowls and he's that bit of pressure being put him on about the new guy Steve Young and how um Bill Walsh handled that and it was uh like, even, say, later on, post Bill Walsh, like, Steve Young went on to have a smashing career, won another Super Bowl, with but the way he handled that situation was fantastic, and and it was all about the team and the end. And I think that's just... Um, just shows the genius of the man, having two superstars like that and getting the best out of both of them.
1: I think, Mossy... Um, the, the quote was... And, like, I've I've noted this from... Jesus, uh, the pen, the ink is... It'll tell you it was written on a on a plane going to Portugal, like somebody yes. that I know that like, but like a quote there from a fellow called Ronnie Lott who who was a famous NFL like Hall of Fame guy. The pursuit of greatness was bigger than me. That's what he said. Mm. He realised that that for for this to happen, it was very hurtful at the time, you know. But for the, for for the organisation to thrive and for things to work out, that it was bigger than any one person and and. The only thing I would say on Bill Walsh, and he's passed away. I don't (laughs) know him personally, Um, but one thing I think he might have failed on it, and this is all about like you know, it's all learning from things, and you know, he he, he's a hundred times better than I'm ever going to be, and will be more renowned and uh, have done much more in his life. But like he 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 probably I think some of those players did find it difficult afterwards, Um, and Paul touched on it when he was talking to me on the phone about how players wanted to win. To prove they could win it without him, and I think that was because he his ego was quite big, um, and he, pro- he he well deserved to have an ego that big for what he did. He took an organization that was crumbling and he turned him into, he turned it into a dynasty basically. But but I, I suppose some of the lads found that difficult that he spoke with the, the organization and how important it was. For, but yet for himself, his ego was was fairly big. Like that's where I would compare him unfavorably or unfavorably with say Chuck Knoll from Pittsburgh the Pittsburgh Steelers that was one thing that Noll had over him Noll never looked for any of the limelight he never really wanted to do anything to do with the media he kept a very low profile and he was always talking about how great everyone else was Bill Walsh spoke about how great people were but he certainly liked the idea of being called a genius and um, he probably took a little bit too much uh, kudos for for, for for things, and that might have gone against them with the with those players. As regards the the quarterback controversy that you're talking about, like that was between Steve Young and Joe Montana, and um, Steve Young is quoted as, t- as saying that Bill Walsh loved to have creative tension. That's what he called it. Yeah. And yeah, I suppose that's that. I suppose we're talking about comfort zones here. We're talking about fellas being too comfortable and 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 when I talk with Connor Sweeney's situation, Connor Sweeney's a, an absolutely phenomenal footballer and was instrumental in, in Tipperary winning what they did this year and well deserved his all-star. and it's been a serious player for years. May, possibly should have got one in two thousand and sixteen as well. Uh, but the thing about it is that creative tension is exactly what I'm talking about with 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 the likes of a Connor Sweeney or a Michael Quindaman. They need to know that that there's they can't be comfortable. And, and that's sad because like, you know, we're all humans and we want people to feel good about themselves and to feel a part of something. And yet you need to have that. You need to have the opposite feeling. You need to have, make sure that they don't get too comfortable. Like they can't feel like they have it sorted because once it's like water, um, you know, it always finds the lowest point. And if you leave people alone and let them get comfortable, they, they just, they mightn't think it, but deep down, they're dropping their let their standards all the time. So you just have to have that sort of bit of pressure, and that's what he did. He had two quarterbacks killing each other to try and get into the team, and that that kept them. They they probably both resented it, but
3: afterwards, mm-hmm.
1: they obviously acknowledged that it was very advanced thinking, really. You know.
3: Yeah, and like as well, he 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 done a lot of subtle things for the players that were for the best of them long term. That in a given moment that they wouldn't have seen that it was, oh, he's looking out for me here, because it was a it was a hard type of love. And like Paddy you mentioned there with the the following season, and the, the players were nearly vindictive in trying to win the following season yeah. when he was gone because they didn't want all the praise going to Bill Watch. They wanted to be the ones who were able to stand up. And that goes back to what you talked about earlier on about them solid foundations being in place that allowed them to be successful afterwards. And it kind of goes full circle, then where you see kind of that bit of strife between him and Joe Montana, But then Joe's the one yeah. in the eulogy at the end of the film. And it really, it really shows the, the the massive and profound life effect that a coach can have on a player or a person. That it's not just the given moments around a particular championship win or a particular season, but it's a much greater collection of everything.
1: Yeah, oh, 100%. Like, um, you hit the nail on the head. For, for Joe Montana, probably Steve Young is quoted as saying that at the time when that was happening, if there was a knife found in the back of uh, Bill Walsh's head, fucking Joe Montana would be top of the list. Like, um, <laughs> You know, he he, he probably was hated, a very strong word, but I'd say it wasn't far off that at the time. But again, like you say, he gave the eulogy in the church, was visibly upset talking about him afterwards, like missed him. So I suppose it just proves that you can, it wasn't, I suppose, um, treat him mean, uh, keep him keen sort of thing. Um, not, not exactly like that, but I suppose there had to be, it can't all be friendly and that sort of thing. And, and I don't think, Bill Walsh ever um, was abusing people on a personal personal level. In fact, you'll see what he he one of the things he did was he used to abuse the coaches more than the players, um, but he certainly didn't have. A, it wasn't a wholly friendly sort of. T- um, in the short term, he probably created enemies, but in the long term, he it was a lasting. It, there were lasting friendships, and he did have you know, fellas had a very strong bond with him afterwards. And, and they obviously were very successful and that helped as well. But you did think people got lessons from, from, from the way he did things and, and he, he taught them stuff about life. Um, when, when you look at some of his video clips, he, he's talking more, it's, it's more to do with core values and, and ways of carrying on rather than X's and O's. You know, he, he was very fancy with his West Coast offense and he had, it was cutting edge at the time. But more importantly were, you know, the quality of the players and the quality of the people that he had and the values that he instilled and how he did things like it. Uh, Joe Montana actually talks about how, how he brought life to things. Like when he when he asked one word, what was one word to describe Bill Walsh? And he said it was life. He brought life wherever he went. And he, he, he sort of lifted everything. And I don't know, lads, I was talking, I don't know if Paul was telling you, but I was talking to him earlier about this and. Like, for all the criticism of, of Tommy Lyons that he got afterwards in the end of his tenure, it's, he certainly did that to the start. Like, you'll have different people wanting to do different things. You'll have, you'll have some people who actually want to do the same as, as Joe Montana and stick a knife in the back of his head. <laughs> Not me, but we'll have other people who were very unhappy with him. But I would have to say, I don't think anyone could argue that when he came in, he changed things he, he brought life with him like and he had a, he, he had a, he had a charisma about him and he, he had a bit of a laugh and he said funny things and he he, he 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 made us take ourselves a little bit less serious um in some ways tommy carr was a good manager and a really good man and a good person but we'd had four years of it and we weren't successful and it got very dour in the last couple of years and we, you felt everything was negative and everything was against us It wasn't his fault but i suppose there was a bit of a siege mentality created and things got sort of down a little bit. And when Tommy Lyons came in, it just, when John Montana talks about you know, about Bill Walsh and he, he brought life with him, that's what Tommy Lyons brought. He, he came in and he was bubbly. And he was another fellow who likes to talk about himself a good bit as well. But <laughs> I have to say that, um, you know, he, he was, I found him very good. I, I found that he gave everything a lift and he tried new things and he, he, he was very big into how things looked and, and doing things properly. Uh, and that's what made it interesting um, when I read the book. Obviously, I hadn't read the book when I was in the middle of my career playing with Tommy Lyons, but it's exactly what Tommy Lyons did. He he he, he was big into having people wearing the gear with the crest on it and, you know, making sure that everything was done properly. And he hated having tacky gear and, and cheap stuff. And if he, I remember O'Neill sent us across a bag of training footballs. <laughs> you know, these training balls. Yes. Um i I'd say, I swear I'm not exaggerating. It probably doesn't make mean an awful lot to use guys now, but at the time in 2002, inter Intercounty was a big deal to have 20 footballs, and club a lot of club training you guys probably all did club training where there was one ball and it was flat. Um with probably St. Margaret's on our or neighbor over or something. <laughs> and um I'd say 50 footballs came down from O'Neills. These training balls that they just tried out, and they, they, they're obviously trying to market it or whatever. And Tommy Lyons, you know, Dave Hendricks was the guy who was the, 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 the um, kit man, what you call the kit man. We only had one at the time. It ends up, in, now there's around 10 of them. But at the time he was, and he was pumping footballs and Tommy Lyons had a look and picked him up and said, well, where did these come? What's the story with this? And he said, oh, O'Neill's just sending them across. And he, he asked me to kick a ball. He said, kick that there. And I kicked, I said, yeah, it's a little bit light. Like it's not the same way. Yeah, take them, put them, get, get send them back. And I, I remember Dave Hendricks saying, What's a pumping, flecking 25 already? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Well, let the air out of them, send them back. We don't want those yokes. They're no good to us. We're using the real, like, we do things properly here. That we're not, we're doing, we do it right. We're not using shoddy footballs. We're What ball are we going to play with in the championship? And O'Neill's match ball. Yeah, they're, they're the ones we're using. Send them back.
3: Jesus, I uh, tell you. Paddy, I'd have been using someone with a bit more finesse kicking the ball than you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in fairness, like, uh, if they got somebody who could actually kick the ball, it would have helped. I mean, <laughs> I should have hand-passed a ball. That's what I... I would have been able to hand the 40 yards. It was like a beach ball, it was. But, um, no, it was one of those things, interesting things, and that just popped into my mind just there now. But
0: nah, Just, you know, just I, when you're... Just in your talk out there, Patty, just popped into my mind today. I just uh, used to train a lot up in the pitch and ballymun with different colleges teams. And I remember one night there was a, a bunch of uh, juvenile team training and they were like a soccer team. And what I mean by a soccer team was it's the first time I've ever seen a club team, underage team, all immaculately dressed. They all had the ballymone training top, the shorts, the socks for a training, for, um, for a training session. And I thought, I thought that is brilliant. And I went in, and I think was is it Johnny? You're in, looks after the clubhouse, yeah. in there? yeah. So I went in and asked Johnny, "What's the story there?" I said, "That's brilliant. He Says, "Yeah, we're doing our best to look after that team." And it was just brilliant the way they were, uh, they looked. And I just said, uh, "Was that just about to get them keep when them the club give them an identity?" Or
1: I wonder which team was that? <clears throat> that was, a, was um... that was a huge issue because I suppose. From the body, we're going on to the body one side of things now. Like, uh, but it's linked in with what we're talking about. I mean, how you look was really, really important for me. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I took the at this stage. You probably have seen. You might have seen a few of the clips or whatever of the of the documentary about the Philly MacMartin's team. And yeah, you know went up there under 10 to Papadri Park which is around 100 metres from where I bought the house like where I'm living you know because I'm attached to that place and um, to this day and went in there and see a whole lot of these guys going around in Bermuda shorts and this sort of thing and it used to drive me oh it drove me mad you know and then you come up again, you know okay for the first while needless to say you're getting your, your bearings or whatever and a club doesn't know there's kids coming and going all over the place you accept that but I mean a year into things like you were wearing like I was handed a set of jerseys that you wouldn't put now on a dog. Um, the, the footballs, I think we had two footballs and both of them were in bits and there was no club gear. You'd know where to get club gear. There was no club shop, like that. And it just wasn't done. And, and like, then you go and you play Bally Bowden or Vincent's or Nathena and you see all these coming out immaculately dressed. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. There were times where you beat those teams and then you could have a laugh and say, oh, yeah, they got dressed up and you were still out to beat them. But I didn't really like that mentality. That was a real Ballymun mentality. Oh, yeah, well, they're going out their fancy gear and all, but we're still better than them. Yeah, but it's not about that, lads. It's more about... It's not even about how we present ourselves to other people, which is what people were always talking about. Oh, yeah, I know. We want to look well to other people. I was more interested in what it said about ourselves. You know, what does this say about us? And when we walk out there, how do we feel about Ballymun? And if you're walking out in a pair of ripped shorts that are in bits... And uh, you know you're wearing the wrong socks and all that sort of thing. I just I, I don't know how you can really feel a part of things like I think it 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 just doesn't reflect well on the club and that was a huge thing for me at the first team. But but even more importantly for the second team because but the time I took the second team, I had obviously got a, a, a handle on how to fundraise and I'd learned a lot of things along the way. So I, the, the second team were immaculately dressed, like, and it didn't mean that they won every match out like that. But I suppose. I wanted them to walk around the area as sort of notice boards for the club as billboards for the club and i want people to, to look out their door and see a red jacket a red nike jacket with a kickin's crest in it and then that might be some man in his mid-thirties who's young for that's two or three years of age he looks out and says well i want my kid to play for that team like i want him to play for that club as opposed to seeing the gear everywhere um I, I thought that was really really important. So. That was a big thing to combat in the club because like I said people there wasn't many people in the club who were interested in juveniles and the ones who were sort of took took that as like not really important but for me it was really really important and it, it, it was important under 10 it was important at senior into county level the fellas were kitted out properly and, and looked well and and yeah it was nice when people other teams came and saw that like a uh, nave barogue I'd have contacted with Nave Barogue and they asked me could they come and watch some of the Ballymoon sessions. The, the last Ballymoon team I had, which was Paddy Small, Evan Comerford, Aaron Elliott, Dylan Keaton, a lot of the fellows who were playing. So that's the team I'm on
0: about Paddy, to be honest, with you.
1: And um, they they came out, and one of the things they said was, "Yeah, you're training the ship, but the gear looks very good." <laughs> <laughs> um, you know they didn't say that but they did say that they were surprised at how basic the training was and and i did warn them lads beforehand i said listen you're going to come up here and you're going to be disappointed you know because we just did a load of shooting and a load of one-on-ones with with keepers and i used juvenile posts and i had two or three keepers so we'd have the 25 or 26 lads split into three groups of eight and then we'd have a keeper in each juvenile goals running parallel to each other and we'd spend ten minutes just going in one on one, finishing all the time. If you can score on a one on one and juvenile goals on a good keeper, it means you're a good finisher, you know. And I often thought to myself over the years, I've lost or we've lost big games with Dublin because we couldn't score one on one with a keeper in a big game in Crow Park. And I don't want to lose games like that, so we're going to work on that. But like, there's nothing fancy in that. I mean, you give a you give a hand pass to a fella, get it back, and then you go in on goal one on one with a keeper. I think the neighbour fellas were sort of saying, like, where's the rest of it? Are you hiding some stuff here? Like, and I sort of laughed. And said, no, That's it, you know? And I remember they came up to a game, the same couple of lads came up to a game a few weeks later, and we ripped somebody like Barry Bowden or Vincent the Sunday by around 35 points in just a league game and did a whole lot of fancy stuff. And they said, oh, yeah, you switched the ball across. it. You didn't do that when you were <laughs> out. When we were to train and you kept all that. I said, I didn't really... To be honest with you, that just happened by itself, you know, that's, that was just innate in them, but that was allowed flourish because of things like having proper gear and regularly training and doing all the basic skills well, and then the rest sort of fell into place, but I wasn't actually pulling the fast one on them, it was just, it was really, really simple, and I suppose that's the drawback when you get involved with county teams or even the likes of the Sigurdsson, um, and be a Paul O'Brien or um, one of the DCU lads who come across and look at a session and say, I wonder, is that it? Like, is that all they're going to do? Like, They're going to do a few basic skills, kicking and catching, they're going to do one on one finishing, and they're going to play a game for 30 minutes, and that's it. In you go, bang, one hour. But, like, the thing about it is, is that the fundamentals are as important at inter county level or at senior club level as they are under 10. And I think a lot of people give credit to stuff that's for the Dublin senior footballers, lads, like I have to be honest and say, I think a lot of very good basic skills being repeated over and over again by good players. Their, their skill skill levels are quite high. And then a lot of the other stuff, I'm not sure if Jim Gavin or Deddy Farrell or anyone else has done an awful lot there. I, I'm probably, I sound like I'm not giving enough credit there. I, I'm giving loads of credit to the likes of Jim Gavin because you know, that success doesn't happen for no reason. But I suppose I would question sometimes whether people read too much into things that are, it's, I mean, if Conor Callaghan goes in on goal, we all know that the likelihood is that's going to be, that's a one-on-one, that's probably going to be a goal. If Dean Rock goes in on goal, one-on-one, if he takes the free, he's likely going to score. (laughs) They're all basic skills and people don't practice them enough and they do fancy things which don't really... I don't think have a huge effect on things. And you'll often find that with the Ballymun team I had, the second team I had, I was telling Paul this as well. When you play teams, particularly down the country, they started focusing on things you were doing. When you were after beating them by 30 or 40 points and they just couldn't, they couldn't even touch the ball. They started looking at things that had nothing to do with the success at all. They did They forgot about the fact that every time the ball came to one of our players, it was a one touch catch. Like that was a big deal for me that you could catch the ball with one touch because at a high level, When you take the second touch, your man has come in and has taken it away from you, you know. So that alone, we would always be doing handling and training all the time. So the fellas' hands were like glue. And if you can catch the ball cleanly and kick the ball well, hand pass to somebody uh, well, not down at their toes or not over their head, between the head and the waist, all those sort of simple things, the rest sort of, if, if they're naturally good players and they have a certain amount of athleticism, you know, the rest will look after itself then. like that, And you'll, you'll have people telling you things like, oh, I like the way you switched that across here and those fellas are running that way. And then that's, this fella came in out of nowhere and you'd have to just eventually say, look, I'll be honest with you, we never did that at all. That just, I don't know, I can't explain that. That just happened by itself. But it will happen only because fellas know that they can execute the basic skills repeatedly. And that's the thing I give... Um, when I give coaching courses, award ones or award twos, and people are asking about these things and they walk out sort of disappointed after my course, <laughs> I say to them at the start of the course, but particularly at the end, I remind them what I said, that people will give speeches in dress rooms about how you need to want to win this more than other team. And, you know, this team did this, and did cheated us three years ago and all this sort of stuff that has nothing to do with playing well in the day. Like what you got to ask is, can you perform the basic skills repeatedly at high speed under pressure? That's really what will dictate whether you win the game or not. Like, if, you're, if you've got two teams of roughly the same ability, who can perform the basic skills at high speed under pressure, you know, repeatedly? And it won't really come down to who wants to win it more because you'd assume that teams at a high level, will, will, you know, we all want to win. I mean, even the fellas standing in kill 16 after having a rake of points beforehand, they'll want to win as well. Like, wanting to win is taken as a given, but it has to be something more than that. Like, and the idea that you could go into a dressing room beforehand and say, we wanted to win it more than them. We have to want this more. You want to, roughly, roughly and of course you don't want them to have more motivation than you, but the likelihood is, you know, both, are, for teams that are at a high level, they'll both be at that level. And you might have this little bit of difference but overall it's negligible it has to be who can perform basic skills better you know
3: something something that really sticks out with what you're saying there Paddy is first touch and first touch for me is something that's far more aligned to hurling and coaching and hurling whereas you don't hear people in football as much talking about first touch of a catch you know and you do hear people talking about tactics and crossfield ball and space all the time and trying to link in to oh, Dublin done this and, and we've, we've talked as well before about people trying to transfer something from one environment to another and not being able to do it but what underage coaches should be trying to do, we'll say link, linking into what the Dublin senior footballers are doing is the execution of basic skills solo right and left hand pass right and left, kick past the ball 25 yards, 30 yards. And if you can do that really well, the other stuff will come on on top of it. But I think it's all getting getting back to what you said earlier. People want to do the fancy things and winning in six months. But build for the future and you'll get there eventually, like. Um, um,
1: obviously that's exactly what i'm talking about and the funny thing about it is there's so many positives associated with what you're talking about there and what i've been talking about like take take even something as simple as your work on the basic skills will that leave somebody crippled with arthritis in 25 years time you know like i mean i i played with dublin for whatever 11 years into county level senior into county level i spent an awful lot of my time running running up and down hills, running across pitches, you know, time 200s, 400s, 800s, I played in the position where I had to run 15 metres out to a ball and I had to catch that ball and if Graham Geraghty was marking me and I dropped that ball, if I took one, if I took one touch, extra touch, if I was lucky enough to get out ahead of him and I ran out and I batted the ball down to myself, bang, he was gone and he was gone around me, he was in on goal. So, none of that stuff is any benefit to me really uh, over the years. And it was a killer at the time when I was training because I wouldn't say it was a genius, far, far from it, but I had I had an education, a college education. So I knew, I, I had, think I had an idea about what was important in training. And when we were doing that sort of stuff, it used to kill me. Firstly, it killed me on a selfish level because I was brutal at it and I was always last in it. And then it, what it used to kill me was that I had no real application in what I was doing on, on the pitch. and. I often felt there was sort of an ego thing associated with, oh yeah, you know, you can run, you know, I oh, keep going till you get sick, and oh look how many, how many hills he can run in ten minutes, and all that sort of thing. And then I was thinking to myself, yeah, but he can't catch the ball when in Crow Park. When he runs out, he drops the ball, like, and then it's in the back of the net. So you're not good to us, you know. Like, I hated the idea that we. I don't mind some hardship in training and and tough running and things like that, but it should never take the place of the basic skills. And and the other thing is, Paul. That sort of hard running and, and, you know, tough slogging. That curtails people's careers, you know. People, you you will find fellas of my vintage and older who are crippled, you know, from doing just consistent, persistent running, um, which served little or no purpose. And, you know, it did a lot of damage to joints and things like that. Whereas what you're talking about there with your first touch were Horland or, as I've said, football, those things, like standing 10 metres apart and somebody pounding the ball at your hands over and over again, it might make the skin in your hands a little bit harder, but it's not going to do any damage to your joints. It's not going to leave you crippled for the rest of your life. And ultimately, it's so, so important. But I suppose, Paul, people look at that and say, you no know, more than it wasn't just Napro. There were other clubs and other counties who, who came up and looked at some of the training that I did with the second team in Ballymoon, because I suppose I was on the radar at that stage and people asked, could they watch the training sometimes? And... I would have fellas, you know, five meters apart, and they would just pound the ball. They'd have, I'd have their hands be out like that, and they would just whack the ball like really hard. And I'd, I'd, when they dropped the ball, I'd blow the whistle. I'd, I'd, I'd say, right, we'll go, and the balls, you'd start hearing the balls and they'd be hammering off each other. And every time a ball would drop, I'd blow the whistle. They wouldn't stop. And then at the end of this, at the end of the five minutes, I'd say, every time that whistle went was, that was us losing the game. Like, because you drop the ball. You should have caught like that that's if if you're a full back or a full forward and you you drop that ball it's likely going to cost us a goal one end or the other you know and that was that was for me more important than any sort of running or or aerobic testing or any that sort of thing like if you could drop if you could catch a ball cleanly and if you could deliver a ball 30 meters to somebody without them having to move 10 or 15 meters left or right if you could deliver the ball to their chest like that, if you can do that, then I think you're a very good player. And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter what tactics you have or what your BMI is or anything else. Like you're you're just you're, you're not going to be at the races.
3: Yeah, there was um as well. Some someone there recently was talking about the, the AFL and the execution of kicking in the AFL that it needed to be kicking straight to chest because of it bounced. Sure, it yeah. could bounce anywhere, you know, and like. There is so little and, and, and particularly particularly the American, Paddy Small is actually someone who was really good at it in the last year, receiving balls straight to chest mm. and get, getting his free shot at goal. You no, know, but it's just something that isn't done anywhere near the level it should be done. And it, at, even at I'm not talking about club football. I'm talking about senior intercounty football. Just not enough people have acquired the skills to be able to, to kick both sides. It's
1: not, it's not considered a sexy pop. What's considered sexy at the moment is, you know, well, in the last number of years, I think it's things like hurdles and ladders and all. I'm sure they have a place in, in developing athletic ability and that sort of thing. But, but I suppose, like, can you catch a ball cleanly a hundred times in a row? If you can't, can you play full back or full? Can you play full back? I mean, can you can you race out for a ball and question yourself and say, "Geez, I don't know if I'm going to catch this." Like, if you're doing that, you're in big, big trouble. Like, uh, but it's but, but but the five meters apart thing where fellas are whacking about ball at each other, people think that's too easy. You know, <laughs> they sort of say, "Is that it?" Uh, and um, I remember taking a team I won't mention a number of years ago just for a guest session um, somewhere in Dublin, and I, I did I was very. I, I I felt I was being very genuine. I did the exact same session that I did, which which worked with say the Ballymena seniors or whatever, and uh, or the Dublin minors or whatever, and I did a replica session. And somebody says after we did a load of that sort of stuff, like catching, kicking, handling, somebody said, "When, when are we going to do the real training?" And I said, a "Bad news, for you. like that's that's the training. <laughs> you know, we're going to play a game now, and that's about it. Like you know, and." But they they really expected an awful lot more, and that you needed to have all these little like fellas flying all over the place and intricate sort of stuff like that. That's lovely. But the only thing about it is, will that happen in a game? Um, I'd often say that to people. You know, would like when they when when fellas will come up with um, when fellas would come up with you know ideas in in an award one and an award two course. You, you give the coaches. Uh, you give them. Little bits and pieces. I'm sure you've, you're you're all aware of it. Like you, you give them uh, a topic, and they go off, and, and they give a little coaching session themselves to the group or whatever. And fellas will come up with some really lovely stuff. Like, and and it'll be very intricate, and it'll look really really impressive. But like my question will then be, okay, but will that happen in the game? Like that. I, I suppose if you if you're if your training is designed around replicating what happens in in matches then you're trying to ask yourself all the time, will these things happen in the game? And I, I like, will somebody kick a ball? Will you have to run onto a ball and catch a ball? Like a, a ball whacked straight at you? Yeah, of course, you probably will. If you're playing fullback, you're going to run out for a ball. And you need to be able to take that ball at pace. But like you a fancy stuff where there's a whole lot of things going on, if that doesn't happen in the game, it's just sort of superficial then. There's nothing really, there's no substance behind it. Like, But it does look great, you know? Mm. Did you enjoy that guest session with Nafina, (laughs) Hady? Nafina are a local club who are very well organised and um, they've done a very good job and although I would have had a few problems with them over the years and some of their, their club mentors wouldn't have been the biggest fans of mine, I would have to say that they've done a good job. That's that's as much. Sure, as... It sure is, this
2: is essentially a Nafina podcast. You got Paul giving them pictures, You got Massey with the kids there, and a
1: former GP also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm wearing a, I'm okay. it. I'm sort of the Tipperary colours. I like the Nafina colours. Maybe.
0: Yeah, you must, want to be careful walking around where you're living there, Paddy, with the Nafina colours, <laughs> One of the things that I thought
2: was really interesting. We kind of touched on it a small bit earlier on. Was about um like build a player. He the players. A lot of the players kind of fell open. Mm. Um, but he was willing to sacrifice that for the success. No, obviously look when he retired and he had his illness and stuff, he probably rekindled a lot of those relationships. But like, is there a balance that needs to get, or is it that elite level success is number one? Forget about everything else.
1: Oh, um
2: But if- it obviously changes between elite and the lower down, like your junior B coach Ooh. relationships are far more important, I'd imagine. But
1: yeah, I suppose look that's that's difficult. If you if you look at his one, he certainly seemed to uh, regret how he treated some of the players. Um, how strongly we can't ask the man now, but would it be lovely to sit down and have a cup of tea with him and, and ask him what he thought right now. Um, like if you're, if you're asking me, I mean the very same things on a, on a lower level, on a on a smaller, more community-based level would have happened with me like uh, the, the infamous one I think it's be, he's brought up a few times <laughs> probably to have a dig at me is Paddy Small. Paddy Small played in an All-Ireland fail Division 1 uh, in, won an All-Ireland fail Division 1 with Paddy Munkickhams was a team that I took, that I took since under 10. He, he didn't play in the final in Porky Cueve. We, we, we absolutely hockeyed, say, Finn bars from Cork in the final and it was a cakewalk really now Finbars were a good team but we just had a particularly strong team and we were absolutely flying and we would 15 fantastic players and another 10 on the bench so it was just one of those teams we, we were always going to be very difficult to beat anyway and we, we played really well it was a beautiful warm day in Porky Creeves so it was just suited us down to the ground on a big open pitch with some very good forwards and Paddy Small didn't play <laughs> and it, it he, he didn't play because he, he wasn't playing well in the group stages and I dropped them for the semi-final. We played St. Michael's from Black Rock, which were an amalgamated team, but a a very good team, actually. And um, we we decided to go with a big man on the edge of the square. Um, And it 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 paid off. Up up until then, we were a bit ropey, but uh, we got out of the group, but I didn't feel we were playing well. So I I suppose on a smaller level, you're asking what's that to do with, with your question. I suppose, like, I, to this day, find a difficulty he, he should have really played he was playing the whole way along he was one of our best players he's one of our top three players since under 10 he just had a bad couple of days you know you, you, we went down to Cork on a on a Friday morning we played three groups through uh, sorry on a yeah Friday morning was it uh, Thursday morning we went down and we played um, group games on a Thursday evening and a Friday. Played the, fr- the semi-final on a Friday evening. So you you know you've kids staying over in people's houses. You're on a bit. You're in a van. You're in a van for three hours, three and a half hours. You know he he, he probably was just a little bit off or whatever. Um, and it was difficult. It, it still bothers him because I know we said it to a few people and ultimately it was my call. Like and his father, God rest him, was the chairman of the club and was a great guy and was instrumental in the revival of Ballymun Kickhams. And it, cer- it, certainly, uh, uh, it certainly bothered me that we had to do that, or I had to do that. But I suppose his father badly wanted the, t- the club to win in all Ireland. He, he, he said to me that he never thought that they would come and it may sadly never come again as, as regards winning division one fail anyway. Ballymone are, are well then the pecking order of things um, in in juvenile in juvenile affairs. So like it was a once off, once in a lifetime, once in a generation group of players that we needed to win that semi final. We were playing against a very strong team, and um, he didn't play. Uh, it, I, if you were to ask me, was it worth it? It just about was. Like I I, I I still don't like the idea of it happening because he was such a good good young fella and. He's listen. He's gone on. And he could. I'm sure he couldn't care less about not playing in an in a, a All Ireland final. He's had to playing in big games, and he has all Ireland medals in his back pocket now. But I suppose those sort of things were difficult. And the same happened with uh, with the fourth team I had. It never came up in the documentary because I think, in fairness, producers were sensitive about things. But there were fellas there who who I let go. Um, I thought that they were. I didn't like to have to do it but I just felt their backgrounds were poor as in not poor as in financially as in there was there were messy backgrounds where there was a lot of stuff going on and they were causing a lot of strife in the, in the group and I was trying to create standards and and have some sort of a, a, a of a I don't know um, I I wanted to develop a respect within the team and a, a respect from other clubs and some of their carry-on was just not good enough. So I eventually, I gave them a, a lot of warrants and I eventually got rid of a couple of them. And to this day, I, I find it difficult. Like I, I meet those kids every so often. Their kids, as in, Jesus, they're 34, 33 or 34. And, you know, they have families now and that sort of thing. And they, they gave up the game afterwards. Some of it to do probably with because they were unhappy with me. And I do feel bad about that sort of thing, you know. I think I made the right decision, but again, it was, it was, I wouldn't say it was, it was crystal clear. They were like, at the end of the day, lads, you're, when when you're dealing with humans, you just, it's not something like a calculator. It's not, it's not digital. It's not binary. It's not zero or one, you know, you're just, you're weighing things up all the time. You make these sort of decisions and ultimately are they the right decisions? It's it's very hard to know. Like, I mean, if I'd have kept those fellas in the forest group, and let them wreck the place and the team fell apart, I presume that would have been the wrong decision. Um, I don't know. With Paddy small situation, if I'd have played him and we'd have lost by a point in the semi final, I know his father would have been very, very disappointed as well because his father was just adamant to me. I remember him saying, under 10, when, when he asked me to, to get involved and take the under 10s, he said, I want these guys to win a failure, you know? And I said, Well, that mightn't happen, you know? Uh, like, we, I'd be more interested in winning the 15th championship or a 16th championship or a minor championship. And he said no. He said for the good of Ballymona and for the area and for for us as a as a as a club, we need to have something like we never win anything. Nobody rates us. We have to be on the radar. We have to put ourselves up there. You know, could, could you get these guys to win this? So I suppose it was it was strange that ended up his own young fella didn't get it. he he came on in the game. He came on in the game, but he didn't start. And I know it bothered him. So it's it's one of those things. Um, I'm I, I don't know whether Bill Walsh. I I I got the impression. I don't know about you guys from watching it, but I felt that he probably regretted it afterwards. I think his daughter was talking about it, and his daughter said that that he cared an awful lot for people, um, and it didn't look like it at the time, but it, it probably bothered him afterwards. Um, he made a he he made a quote. Um, I don't know if it was in the program or whether it was in the book, but he said his dream was before he'd pass away that he'd love to get all those fellas into a room and you know i think shake hands with them i say that he loved them you know i'm sure he actually did love them all in a way but he just couldn't you know um and that i think that's what i said it to me that he, he regretted those things like you know he i mean one of the classics was um which worked but one of the classics was a fella called dwight clark who made this famous thing called the catch you know in 1981 when they won their first super bowl and They were playing the Dallas Cowboys, and he made his catch in the last few seconds in the end zone. Um, Last, nearly throw the dice, and that's what got them. That's that's what basically uh, they they end up. That was a sort of like a semi-final equivalent, and um, they they won it. uh, And they won the Super Bowl afterwards. And he took that fellow who had basically won the Super Bowl, and he sort of let him go. and your man speaks about it afterwards and said he's passed away, actually, Dwight Clark. But he says it was very difficult to take, like that he was, he was treated like that after all the years of service he'd given. But Bill Walsh believed in, in letting fellas go before they passed their sell-by date. And it was extremely effective because we all know, lads, from the groups we're involved with, be it at club or county level, that there are people at the end of their careers and sometimes they just hang around a little bit too long and they drag things down and they, they go back enough that they just aren't really a, uh, any huge benefit to you anymore. They don't do enough for the team, et cetera, et cetera, and they can become toxic. And it's a very clever thing to do, to let those fellows go before they become like that. From an NFL point of view, they still have a transfer value and they have a, a wart when they're well-known players, but I suppose they lose a lot of that value when they get to the last part of their career. But then on the flip side of things, like um, you know, you, you, you'd like to think that there was loyalty there, and that you would keep a fella on because he'd done so much over the years. So I'm sure Bill Walsh found that very difficult as well. That's a, that's a very very long answer to the question you gave. I
0: think uh, Alex Alex Ferguson, Alex Ferguson did that brilliantly as well. I think it was '95 after winning the double double, and he got rid of Hughes, Czeska, and Paulin's because he just didn't. Think he was going to get the value out of them in the future, and he thought Ince might have been a bad seed for the young lads coming through, and they probably read watch his book. <laughs> I think
2: and um, Stuart go back and Stuart Lancaster. I think I think you mentioned it before, Massie. I think Stuart Lancaster used to say to get get at ten o'clock, twelve o'clock. If it was past it, and fellas were peaking at ten o'clock, if you can go a bit at twelve hour o'clock, and that he wanted everybody to be around ten o'clock where they're just. Peaking in their career, and if they got to 12 and he still had them, they were gone too far. So, again, he robbed I think Stuart Lancaster, just robbing everything that Bill Welch did. Um, mm-hmm. Anything else on
0: the show, lads? Um, I thought it was mentioned earlier about yelling at the coaches rather than the players. And then the players buying in that they felt like they had to do it for their coaches. Yeah, I thought that was very funny and well thought of.
1: I, I, I don't know if you noticed, lads, but the, one of the lads who spoke about that afterwards became an NFL coach himself, a head coach. And he laughed and said he swore after that happened he would never do that. And then he ended up, <laughs> he found out that it was, it was very, very effective. You know, yeah. there are certain things you look at and you sort of say a bit like... I suppose, myself and my father, we wouldn't have always got on well over the years. Sometimes we would have had the odd row. And I often said, oh, I'm never going to go on like that with my kids, the way that he went on with me. And then I did the very same thing to be on Ufla, you know. <laughs> um, It just, it's one of those things. Um, but, uh, uh, like, the other thing I found interesting, uh, uh, um, just on my own little notes, that, and I said this to Paul O'Brien already, was, you um, what I loved about the early days of Bill Walsh, he, he, he modelled himself off a fella called Paul Brown, and the, the, the Cleveland Browns are named after him. Um, Paul Brown was actually involved with the was managing the, was the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, and he brought Bill Walsh in. And there was this well-known thing, this in, infamous thing that happened where Paul Brown decided he was going to step away, and everyone assumed Bill Walsh would take over, and basically Paul Brown... So I stabbed him in the back and got another guy in instead and, and Bill Walsh walked away and the rest is history. But um, Paul Brown, I would have read a little bit about him as well. And and he brought in a lot of, a lot of Bill Walsh stuff is is sort of, he tweaks Paul Brown stuff. And one of the things that I liked about Paul Brown spoke about was um thinking about your team as a, a precision machine. He said, it was like a precision machine. You had all these basic little things that you had to do. So, you know, you had your, Basic hand passes, your basic kick passes, your handling, your handling, you know, your one-on-ones, thirty yards out in front of the goals, both feet, all simple tackles, how to tackle properly, all the nuts and bolts, and then it, it's it's as if like your your group becomes a machine. You just sort of churn this out over and over and over again, and that's why again you don't need the team talks. Then you practice that in training, you have all the nuts and bolts in place. And then you're like a machine, and you just uh, you bring in people from the outside. Sometimes, or some other fellow who, who's only just joined a team, and he comes in and he just becomes part of the whole factory. And you just sort of churn it out over and over and over again, and therefore it cuts out all the things about wanting to win it more than anyone else. Or, so, um, you know, uh, even things like people being in bad form or, or, or struggling with stress, or they might be doing their leaving certain, they're under pressure. No, but with basic skills here, you just do these things, forget about everything else, catch and kick and all that sort of stuff. And then it's like a machine and you just sort of, you just keep on doing those things over and over again. A a little bit like the Jim Gavin thing about the process. You have an idea of what you need to do. The fancy name for them is KPIs, Key Performance indicators, But but like you have those, Bill Walsh calls them performance standards, the standard of performance. You have all these things that you need to do um, and you do those things until you just keep doing them until the opposition crack, and that's what that the second team in Kilkims would have been what I would have always said to them. Like the first ten or fifteen minutes, because they had this aura about them that people were talking about even down the country and all. Like they they were saying, "Jesus, I've never seen such a how str- how good they are." That this to that. So you had teams going out and they would try everything under the sun, particularly in the first twenty minutes, and they try all these fancy formations that have 15 men behind the ball. One minute they'd have. 25 men behind the ball they'd take 10 subs from the sideline and throw them in as well they try they do all sort of fancy stuff and like i half time you just say okay we're just going to continue on what we're doing and then eventually they just can't maintain that for long enough like they, they, they might do it for 20 minutes or 30 minutes but we could just maintain that for a full game to maintain the basic skills all the time it wasn't that we we had to escalate things at all or uh, improve things or try harder or any of that sort of rubbish. It was just like, no, we just kind of continue on doing this until they eventually break, and then when they did break, then it just it'd just be a complete collapse. Then like you'd end up ratcheting up three or four or five goals. But it happened one day against a team from Cav and I was telling Paul about it. We were playing them in a, in a game, and we just rattled off a load of like they were they were hanging they were really hanging in hanging on in there, and they were a good team, and these. It, they, we, we sort of thought we might be pipped by them, you know, not that they didn't lose before. I made sure that the team lost. or We always played teams who were a year or two older than us to make sure that they got that they never got into this sort of thing of, all oh, undefeated. So that that never happened. But, like, this would have been a team that put it up to us and they were fairly good. And Near the end, then around 15, 20 minutes ago, we rattled off a short kick out. Evan Comerford was in goals and he rattled off a 30-yard kick out to the wing back. Who was on the run, your man torn caught it. There was somebody right up his ass, but he caught it, torn hand passes to somebody else. I think he delivered another 30 yard ball to uh, a fellow called Anton Swan. His father would have played for Bohemians, Derek Swan. He came running out, caught the ball clean, torn left hand hand pass to another fellow. I think. I think it was either another kick pass or it was straight to Aaron Elliott, who ran in on goal buried in the back of the net. And your man said to me, the manager you know what was there you never dropped the ball you know <laughs> the ball never hit the ground we we, we we were right up beside you but we couldn't get a hand in because the ball was never dropped and I remember being so proud that time of I said that's exactly what we wanted to create we wanted to create that sort of it didn't matter what they did it was it was it, it didn't matter how hard they tried because they eventually just just cracked you and then they sort of stopped trying, and then eventually we just scored four or five goals. But it was just a matter of maintaining that for long enough until nobody can maintain that that sort of level of performance for that long and hang on in there. They've no more than Dublin with the teams that they've played against. You'll see teams giving them a game for a while, but eventually, then because their skill levels are higher, it, the, the dam eventually bursts. Like
3: and Paddy, just just last thing there. It, 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 that links in completely too so it's 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 mad. You talk about reading the book um, reading the book and the plane on the way over, right? And what you're talking about there is like deaths by by paper cuts yeah, right And that will that's mentioned in it. And then you talked about we'll say that that one piece of play. but in the in the film, like they talked about they used adjectives that aren't typically used and we'll say, American football or, or Gaelic football or hurling or anything. They talked about things being pretty and beautiful yeah. and sexual. He, they, they were the words that were used, but they were, it was basic stuff that he's seen as as pretty and, and and beautiful. Just the execution of a thing, What the, the, the phrase was a foot in front of the number. Yeah. No, so, and I, I think that's. That kind of that's something that really stuck out to me was the, the way he, he used language around what the players were doing on, on the pitch, you know?
1: Well, it was like a, a masterpiece, Paul. Like it was like Michelangelo. It was it or Da Vinci, it was it had to look well to Bill Walsh. It had to it had to look well. And that meant <clears throat> that meant on the pitch, but it also meant the secretary answering the phone had to do it properly. So it, it wouldn't have come up in the in it would have come up in the book, but not in the in the documentary. He wanted his secretaries to answer the phone saying, "49ers, how can I help you?" Not one of these. Oh, here, what do you want? Here, I'm busy here talking to me pal or whatever. Like he wanted it professionally done. Whether you were the cleaner or the caretaker or the secretary of the 49ers, he wanted a certain level all the time, and it had to look well, and had to sound well on the phone, and all those sort of things were much more important than what happened on the pitch, enough, uh, and that's, I suppose, what I lead back to all the time, but like, oh, I always end up coming back to when, when people say they want you to come in, I, I get the heebie-jeebies if somebody rings and says, can you come in and take this team for two months because like they need a bit of a, a boost or whatever, and I'm sort of thinking to myself, even if I did it, I wouldn't believe in it because you need to be doing that for two years or, or, or five years. You, you can't sort something like that um, overnight it's 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 having all the basics in place and doing things really well simple things over and over again and and being happy with that like you have to be happy with that Paul like um, you have to see value in that and it that, that something as simple and as basic it can be can be beautiful and can be very very effective and and that's hard for people to take people like to see the fancy stuff and they like to the fancy quotes and that sort of thing, and like I said, there is genuine disappointment with some,
3: some of the people
1: who come to my coaching courses or talk to me on the phone or see me interviewed with things. And they sort of say, Oh, god, here we go again, you're going to start talking about kicking the ball and catching the ball, yeah, because they're the things that ultimately win games, you know, like what else the game is called football, like you kick the ball with your foot. Um, and if you can't catch the ball. I mean, I was talking to a journalist recently and he was looking for me to to talk about 2000, 2001, 2002 with Dublin and uh, you know, I sort of spoke to him for hours about it and I found myself going off on tangents like I'm doing with you guys here, <laughs> and um, what you call it, When it, all I can think of is, coming back to your point Paul, like 2001, the guys may or may not remember with Leinster final against me. I certainly remember because it, it was Martin Graham Gertie, and I sort of did fairly okay. Like, I always struggled against him, he was a fantastic player. But we held our own on the back line, like against serious good forwards, like Ollie Murphy, Graham Gertie, Trevor Giles, Evan Kelly, these sort of guys. And, um, you know, and there was more of them, actually, Brendan Riley, maybe as well. The series about the good players up front. And i've never watched the game that i played in i've never watched but i could tell your man I, all i can think of all the time is how did we lose that game and we lost that game your man told me the stats afterwards and with something like i am afraid to say because it's it sounds far it's some enormous number of boys and i remember looking at the game and standing with my hands and my hips and graham gary said to me jeez like i got on well with him even though we used to kill each other I actually liked him and was on the international rules team with him and that sort of thing. And I sort of always, my father was from Meade, so And I always thought, I'd love, I would have loved to have played with him and had him on Ballymun Kickhams or Dublin. We would have won multiple championships or All Ireland if we had him. And I remember him saying to me, Jesus, tell you what, you need to, you need to have a word with those boys up front. And it was a killer. Um, we had one on ones. We 25 yards in front of the goals couldn't score. And I remember doing shooting practice with. With, with what you'd call high-level teams and fellas that look at you and say, like, is that it? And I'd say, I've lost more games, big games from people who can't score one-on-one with a keeper or can't score 30 yards in front of the goals. Like the outside of the boot stuff that Conor Sweeney did against Limerick that day, okay, that's an exceptional piece of skill. And yes, you can say that, you know, that, that happened in fairness. But the majority of the game, like that did save that day. That saved us but the majority of the big games that i played in and that i lost were to do with um lack of like poor execution of fundamental skills um can I ask
2: one last question petty uh unrelated to the film Today's game, the fullback has the role of the fullback has really changed and going back in your. time, oh, I was a fullback in football, you see, so I had an interest.
3: <laughs> Are you I'm comparing yourself to Paddy Christie? Yeah, yeah,
2: you're yeah. yeah. To I get title. to it. I, I get to it. <laughs> no, but um, look, do you know what? Like back, back when you were playing, back in the I suppose the early thousands, there was like some Darren Fay, Graham Canty, yourself, Seamus Moynihan, uh, even Francis Bellew, like really kind of household fullback names and. If you were playing these days nowadays, would you be a fullback or would you just be another defender that has to multiple roles, or would you be further out the field? Like, is the is the role of the fullback just situation or
1: Yeah, well, I, I suppose the angle I'd come in there. I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but I suppose I feel that um, it's diminished the role in some way in the last ten years in that. If you're struggling, full, I, I, if, I, if I go back to 2001 and I was marking Graham Gerthy, um, it was I had a couple of sleepless nights before that game thinking about what he could do if he got the ball and how dangerous he was. And the thing about it was was that you were playing in front of 82,000 people and there was no one going to help you. There was no one coming back. There was no artillery coming over the hill. There was no cavalry. You just got roasted. That was it. And if you if you were getting roasted, you get a bollock in a half time and say, "Stop getting roasted and try harder." <laughs> and the thing about it is, is that you just mightn't have it on a given day if the ball was coming into him well um, and getting p- back passes stuck in his chest. You just mightn't be able to stop him. You know, it, 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 you were depending so much on, the, on on pressure out the pitch on the ball coming in. But like to come back to your question, I would feel when you did do well, and that day I did reasonably well. It. Sadly, I just think that we lost the game, and that 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 obviously is over over arching sort of memory. But um, I think that I got a lot of play. I got a lot of personal pleasure out of thinking that I could match him that day and beat him one on one. The odd time, not not all the time, but the fact that I was able to, I stood up and marked him, took him on on the edge of the square under severe pressure particularly when the other end we were struggling to score and you knew that every time he scored that you may not score the other end which is a terrible way to, to live your life you know it's not, like, it's not like the Dublin defenders now who can concede 114 or 115 but they know they're the score two, 235 the other end um, that's I, I I would feel a little bit uneasy about that I probably should feel great about it if I was catapulted back into the Dublin team and somebody said look we're going to bring a few extra fellas back and they're going to score a lot up front, so your brand you can let him score, doesn't really matter. That's probably nice in one way, but I got a lot of pleasure out of on some occasions beating fellas like that or doing relatively well against them. Um, in a one on one situation where it was just you and him in a pure shootout, like and there was nobody coming back, there was that, that was uh, and it was a pure full back versus full forward thing. And whoever the best man will win in the day, that sort of thing. I would I, if I'd say if I continued on my career for if I was out lucky enough to have stayed for, playing for another five or six years where that sort of defensive system came in and you'd extra men back, I probably would feel a little bit, a little bit uneasy about that. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a good enough answer, anyway. So, no, no, thanks very much. Um, two things before
2: you go, two disclaimers we'll have to put in one, uh, you mentioned St. Michael's there you said your amalgamation, St. Michael's are the Ballymun kickums to Black Rock's Satanta. Okay, sorry. Man. So, just in case I need them, pick me up on it down here. And the other one is, you talked, you were yourself and Paul were talking about your, I suppose, the, the short-term success with Tipperary. And, but I'm sure if David Power came on, when he got involved in 2007 or 2008, mm-hmm. he'd say the long, wow. long-term, long <laughs> this was eventually the plan and that's where they ended up. So, um,
1: he uh, I he. He definitely, you've mentioned him, and he definitely, when I met him originally, when I spoke to him on the phone, when he asked me to get involved, like when I met him down in the horse and jockey, he spoke a lot about, and he'd never read that book, or he'd never, sure, was involved in that sort, of, like really going into that sort of depth, but he, he, his ideas are very much, you're always looking to get, when you're, when you're getting involved with people, you don't need to have them on the very same, him sheet as you but you do need some sort of a common yeah you know you, you can't be completely po- you can't be poles apart like you can have sort of you can be a little bit off each other but he is very much along those lines and, and when we talk about when, when we talk we're, we're always talking about how will this affect things long term so I'd 100% agree with you there I mean the reason why Tipperary are and were where they are for the last number of years is because fun ironically some of the guys who were involved in the senior management were were the people who created that. Like so, it was David Power, a fellow called Tommy Toomey, um, Charlie McGiver. Um, those guys. Then you had a fellow who's not involved now, but he was involved for years. Peter Creeden, who's a secondary school principal down there. Um, you had a number of not many. I think probably less than ten, but people who put in an awful lot of groundwork, and then it sort of came to fruition. Now not. As much as the lads wanted, still, but certainly made a big difference to Tipperary football. So, like, without doubt, he, yeah, he needs to be given kudos for that. And he's always talking about the long term all the time. And funnily enough, would have said to me before, we need to put a setup in place here so that when I eventually step away, or when we all step away, that somebody else will come in and get a really good group of lads. With a really good structure, and that they'll just take it on to the next level, which is very, very unselfish. Like, there's a possibility that when you say something like that, there's a possibility that you will do a lot of work and you won't get the rewards for it. It'll be somebody else who gets the rewards, and that's that's a good sign of somebody, somebody whose ego is not taking over the whole room, and they're more interested in in the good of of the the money rather than the good of the few. Excellent.
2: I think he caught you when you got to
1: the. The horse and jockey, he
2: probably threw a few desserts in front of you there, and <laughs> the desserts still <down> there. <laughs> quality yeah. Um, so look, t- Paddy thanks very much for your time, really appreciate it. And thanks, Paul and Matthew as well. Guys. Cheers,
1: that's nice talking to you.
2: We are into season four now, so thanks to everyone who has listened so far. We would be grateful if you would take the time to give us a retweet. And- on twitter or just share with your friends it would always be great if you could give us a five-star review on apple podcasts it would mean a lot to us and we'd really appreciate that hope you all have a great week we'll talk to you next tuesday when we're talking to mickey donnelly and we're watching chariots of fire see you
0: all next week everybody